Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. Well, welcome to the fourth episode of our launch series. It's a partnered seven episode series with Trilogy Search Partners and Pacific Lake Partners on the stages that a searcher will go through prior to becoming a CEO. The guest on this episode is Jim Vesterman. He was the CEO of Raptor Technologies and is still on the board today. He has a lot of great advice and stories and examples for working with sellers, which is the primary topic for this episode is seller relations as you go through a due diligence process. And to help introduce him today, I'm joined by Chris Hendrickson at Pacific Lake and Aaron Perrine at Trilogy Search Partners. So Aaron, maybe I'll pass to you for the first part of beefing up the intro for, for Jim here. Man, we're thrilled uh, to have Jim today, and he's he's going to give such a, a great set of of examples here. You know, Jim's search predates Trilogy, uh, although I know that Chris and the team at Pacific Lake are investors with Jim and have a long relationship with him. Uh, my own much more modest connection to Jim is that I uh, interned with him when I was at Wharton, so he had uh, a couple uh, MBA uh, interns in 2010 and 2011. I take absolutely no credit for either helping him source Raptor or, or, or really any, any of the other great things that happened uh, in his search. But he was my introduction to uh, the search fund model and to the great group of investors that Jim uh, worked with. So I, I thank him for that. And it's a real privilege to have him on the podcast. Yeah, Aaron, I think it's great to have him. We should mention that that Jim is teaching a new ETA class at Wharton. So where you two connected, he is now... Uh, bringing it to an even even greater depth. And we're really appreciative for all the things he does to educate and support searchers, in, including doing this podcast with Alex. Personally, I'm excited to hear from Jim. You know, we're in that same vintage of searchers. We bought companies around the same time. And so I've known him a long time, but I haven't heard a lot of these stories, actually. I didn't know some of the, some of the details of what he gives in this podcast. And so I really liked how he gave detailed examples of being unique and different and, and some of the ways he took chances, actually, to build rapport and relationship with sellers. Yeah, there's just such a, a great set of examples here on, you know, uh, questions that come up all the time in seller dynamics that Chris, I know you and I are, you know, try to advise searchers on when to get on a plane, what kind of seller stories make sense, how to develop real rapport, um, ideas for seller interactions and rapport building at first meetings, uh, during due diligence, and then at close and beyond. So this is a truly comprehensive tour through all of the different types of seller dynamics that happen during search. And I I think it's going to be really useful for folks. Yeah, comprehensive tour is a a good term for it. And if you missed our earlier launch series episodes, we did our first one on industry research, our second on starting up a search itself, and then the most recent one on the diligence process in this seller relations episode with Jim is a fantastic compliment and fourth part of the series. Well, thank you, Jim, for coming on the podcast for this episode of the launch series, talking about seller relations. You've had a lot of different experiences with sellers and the, lots of different scenarios that you've worked with. 
I'd love to just start by hearing some of the, of course, the company you acquired, Raptor, and ran as CEO, learn about that experience you had, but some of the others maybe along the way of the different dynamics with sellers that you've had and just your experience there. Sure. So why don't I just start with a little bit of background, a little bit on a couple of the examples that I'll draw from. But I raised a traditional search fund in 2009. I then searched for over two and a half years. So I had a very long search and then acquiring Raptor Technologies in April of 2012. And however, along the way, I took another two companies pretty much all the way through or almost all the way through diligence. So I think we can draw on those as well. So the first one I actually found very early in my search process. It was a great tech-enabled services company that I thought was fantastic, fell in love with very quickly. The owner was on the younger side in his 40s, wasn't quite sure that he was ready to retire, but wanted some liquidity did not have any advisors. It was a proprietary search. He didn't have any advisors helping him. And all of those things led to a little bit of a mess, including uh, some, some other elements that I'll get into later. So that was one example that I'll draw from. I took that almost all the way to close. About 18 months into it, I found another company that I got under LOI and took actually all the way to close. That had a private equity seller So a very small private equity firm was the seller in that particular deal. It was healthcare services. And I took that from LOI all the way essentially to the closing table. And then I ended up walking away at the closing table and we can get into some of those details. But that seller was a small private equity firm. They obviously had a whole slew of advisors and they were the second owner of that company. Then the third example I'll draw from is the one that I ended up closing on Raptor Technologies, which I found about over two and a half years in, got it under LOI, and then in the diligence process, did three months of diligence and closed on that deal in April of 2012. Then after that, I ended up running the company for eight and a half years, Raptor Technologies. And we can talk about some of the the dynamics, but it was about 11 people when I found it. When I sold it, about 130 people today, it's about 260 people. I'm still on the board and we can go through some of the characteristics, but that had a founder seller, which I think is important, who was ready to retire and was a single individual. His wife did do accounting for the, for the firm. He was essentially a single owner. And we can talk about the differences between single owners and and multiple owners along the way. But I think those are the three examples that I'm going to draw from. And then, of course, I had a long interaction over time with the seller post-closing. Again, closed in April of 2012 and then stepped out of the CEO role in December of 2020. Yeah, so through all those different experiences with sellers, what did you learn about identifying the right characteristics for the ideal seller for a a search fund acquisition? In my mind, there is an ideal seller archetype. That doesn't mean that you have to find that ideal ideal seller archetype. It doesn't mean that that's the only thing that closes. But I do think in my mind, there is an ideal seller archetype. And that is a single seller who is the founder 
and is looking to retire. And all those elements bring with them dynamics that I think are positive. So single seller versus multi-seller, I think when you're in a multi-seller environment, one, you have to deal with the different dynamics of, of the sellers in the sale process. Two, you have to replace them. And in some cases, there are two, three, four, five, six sellers involved, and you have to deal with them either replacing them immediately or dealing with them hanging on through the operating phase, which both of those have are problematic. So in my opinion, the ideal is a single seller. And in my case, I dealt with that in the, in the first example and the almost in the second example. Obviously, the wife did work in the business at Raptor Technologies, but it was close to a single seller. And then in the, in the second example with a private equity firm, they had a CEO, but I was going to replace the CEO. So I, I think that element of having a single seller is the ideal. Again, you can close on many deals that aren't ideal, but I think that's the ideal. Secondly, I think founder is important for a couple of reasons. One is that the founders are usually maxed out from their management capacity. And that's good for us as search fund entrepreneurs. That's good for us because that leaves some low-hanging fruit. And then we can fix those issues, gain some value, and, and grow the company from there. So a founder usually, not always, is maxed out at the level at which they're trying to sell. So I think that's important as opposed to, for example, the private equity firm that I was trying to buy from. They were not founders and therefore their sole and only interest was to maximize the value of the transaction. As opposed to a founder, more often than not, that is not their sole and only interest. More often than not, they actually have their baby, this company, their baby, and they want to see that baby grow and become prettier and prettier over time. And that is perfect, in my opinion, for search fund entrepreneurs. They too want to grow that baby and make it prettier and prettier over time. So that being one of their main criteria for founder sellers, I think is very important. Again, not the case with a private equity firm seller. And then finally, I think wanting having a seller that wants to retire is a key element. In the first example I, I talked about, the guy was in his 40s. He didn't really want to retire. And there are many cases, I think, in the search fund world, and, and we find lots of deals where they don't necessarily want to retire. They maybe want to stay on as the head of sales or the head of engineering or something like that. And sometimes that can work. Sometimes it can work to keep the guy around, but more often than not, it does not work. I would say maybe eight out of 10 times, it doesn't work to keep them around over a year or two. And then if they're not ready to retire, they very well might go off and start another competitive business, which does happen. So in my opinion, there are three key criteria that it is a ideally a single seller, that that seller is the founder and that they want to retire. In my opinion, that makes life the easiest. Again, it doesn't have to be that way, but that makes life the easiest. And it sounds like you view a husband and wife kind of founder pair as closer to the characteristic or profile of that single seller rather than multiple co-founders up, you know, up to, you mentioned up to six being possible, like six different co-founders is of course different than a husband and wife. Like how do you view the husband and wife multi-founder versus Maybe there's now three, possibly four or five and above. 
No, I think you're right. At the end of the day, it is close to having two sellers because you do have to replace them. But usually in that case, it's almost always the case that one is the real CEO and the other does some things. That's that, In my experience, that's normally the case. And so you, in my case, for example, the, the wife was the head of accounting. So you can find a head of accounting. The head of accounting is not necessarily a key role. Whereas if they are, if I can say two distinct sellers, you know, a pair that's one might be the head of sales and the other might be the head of operations. They might split it up that way. And in that case, you actually have to replace sales and operations as opposed to replace the CEO and find a controller. So I think there is a a bit of a difference. I might be exaggerating that difference, but I do think there is a bit of a difference. Yeah, how do you take a take scope and stock of different roles, the roles that the sellers are playing within the business and whether or not you can replace them? It sounds like some roles are, of course, easier to replace than others. You, of course, are going to be the CEO. So that's an easy role for you to replace day one. It's, that's what you're designed to do. But how do you think about some of these other roles that founders, sellers might be playing in the business and how to go about replacing those? The way I think about it is, is it a normal hire? For example, if, if, the, if the owner runs sales, well, a very normal hire is to hire a, a VP of sales. So that can be replaced. If um, they are the head of product, you can hire a head of product. But at the end of the day, again, the, the value of having a, a single seller is that you you really have a silo generally of their true expertise that needs to be replaced. You're going to, of course, come in in gen- the general management role, but they're going to have one kind of true expertise. And in my particular case with Raptor, the guy was the head of sales. That's fine. We lose, we lose that uh, strength in, in the company, but we can replace that by hiring a single head of sales and then I can take general management. So I, I think I think it depends. I think it's a little bit more scary when they're the head of engineering, which I think does happen, just because they usually then hold the keys to the software kingdom if you're buying a software company. And that gets a little bit scarier, in my opinion. I know you have software background. That to me is a little bit scary. But I think all roles are replaceable, but you know, if you have five sellers and one is the head of sales and one is the head of operations and one is the head of engineering, et cetera, et cetera, one the head of customer service, that's a that's a sticky situation to go into, in my opinion. Yeah, certainly. So you, you talked about that single seller being the ideal kind of maybe number of sellers, but what about the what about the mindset that that seller has towards the business? You talked about that single founder more often being or more often having that mindset of this is my baby, I want to see it grow and be healthy and you know become beautiful and more beautiful over time. When you're looking at the right seller, what mindsets are you looking for? Uh, I think it is that. I think, in my opinion, the sweet spot for search funds is to find the seller who really does value their baby and you can make the pitch to them. Unlike other options that they have. You can make the pitch to them that I'm going to take that baby, I'm going to grow that baby, and I'm going to make you proud. Alternatively, they could sell to a private equity firm. And that private equity firm doesn't care a lick about making 
their baby pretty. They care about maximizing value and whatever it takes to do that, merge it with another company, whatever it takes, that's what they're going to do. Or you could sell it to a competitor who also doesn't really give a lick about your baby. They want the customers or the technology, and they're just going to take those customers and take that technology and pull it into their firm and move on. And you, the seller, are not going to be able to look five years down the road and, and be proud of your baby. So in my opinion, that is the ideal sales pitch within the search fund world is I recognize this is your baby. It is a beautiful baby. I'm going to make it more beautiful and you are going to be proud. And I think when that's what they're looking for, that's the pitch we have. That's the differentiating niche that we provide as search fund entrepreneurs, as opposed to selling to your competitor or selling to private equity. And also if it's the case that they want to retire, right? If they want to retire, then they don't want to sell to private equity who will more often than not want to keep them around. So I think there is a niche for us in, in the search fund world. I think that that is it. And, but again, with the caveat that you can get lots of great deals done and it doesn't have to be exactly that way. But I think in my opinion, that that is the ideal archetype. What did you learn about building trust and rapport with sellers through these various experiences? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to a lot to natural rapport. If you happen to have a good natural rapport, I think that really helps. In the case of Raptor, I had a good natural rapport with the with the seller. He valued my background with some security experience in the military. He valued my couple of years in SaaS software already. And we simply had a, a good natural rapport. So at the end of the day, you can't gear for great natural rapport, but I think that that is, is very important. It is important that you feel that you can trust the seller. So in the, in the case of the first example that I mentioned, it was tech-enabled services company with a younger seller who really was looking for money and not necessarily looking to retire. At the end of the day, I, I felt like I wasn't sure that I could ever trust him. And then, you know, 12 months down the line, after dying and being revived, dying and being revived multiple times, I ended up finding fraud on the books. And so that initial sense of not being able to trust the seller is important. And then in that particular case, it turned out that there was fraud on the books because he was trying to pull cash out and he did it in a way that was fraudulent. So trusting, being able to trust the seller is important. You know, some people like to say that a good seller knows this business inside and out and they can hide whatever they want from you. Maybe you'll find it but they know the business very well. And if they want to hide something, they will try and they will probably succeed. So you really have to have a, a sense of trust from that seller. In the case of Raptor, you know, one real problem with the company was the stability of the SaaS software. So it was a single source, multi-tenant SaaS software platform. And they, were, they had problems for the entire 10-year life of the company with stability. And he was very straightforward about the system crashing. And he didn't try to hide it. And I liked that. He wasn't proud of it, but he did not try to hide it. And uh, it was a very good sign that he was putting the dirty laundry out there in the beginning. And so we went in 
myself and, and my investors went in with eyes wide open. And in fact, post-closing, it was a problem. The, the software crashed, I think it was 42 times in the first 52 weeks. So it was a big problem, but we went in eyes wide open. So I, I think trust, transparency is very important, is a very important seller characteristic. You mentioned the seller telling you about the problems as well as the good things was helpful to determine if they were trustworthy. Are there other tactics or things that you could do or maybe ask to help assess the trustworthiness of a seller? I think follow, ask the same questions multiple times and follow the consistency. If the answer bops around a lot, I think that's a a clear sign. So I, I think that's a tactic that some I've heard some other search fund entrepreneurs use and they write down specifically what they say and they ask it three months later and they write that specifically down. And so I think follow consistency, that, that is super important. And then obviously you're there to build rapport. This is a sales, part of this is a sales process. So whether you have natural rapport or not, you need to build it because you need them to want to sell to you. And so you've got to build that early on. You've got to make your case. You've got to make a clear case and work hard to build off of any natural rapport that you you might otherwise have. And then you use that because you're going to go through tough times, usually, in the sale process. And so you need that rapport to stabilize you in those tough times. What tough times did you go through where rapport was really especially helpful? I would say a couple things. I don't think it it qualifies as extremely tough, but one of the things that happened in in the case of Raptor was the the small two-man broker shop brought the company to market. And that same week, the seller went on a month's vacation out of the country. And so I had an initial conversation with the broker. I thought this seems like it could have real legs. That conversation went well, and I asked to speak to the seller who was in Mexico. And But we had such a great relationship. Again, I'm selling, but we, we had natural poor, but I'm also selling, selling why I'm the best buyer for this business, how I'm going to make his baby pretty over time, etc. We had such a great conversation that I that I asked him to fly back from vacation and fly into the office and have and meet me in the office because otherwise I wouldn't be able to put a bid in on the company. And he flew back from vacation, met me in the office. Turns out because of that, I'm the only buyer he ever met. Because after that meeting, I said, you know, I'm gonna I'll have an LOI on your desk on Monday. He kind of laughed, but on Monday I had an LOI on his desk. It turns out that we were a couple million dollars off on the purchase price. But because we had that good rapport, I convinced uh, the broker and the seller saying, listen, we're, we're very close here. We're a couple million dollars off. I'm the right buyer for this business. Can you only negotiate with me for the next couple of weeks while he's on vacation? And if we can fix this $2 million gap, we can go forward. And if we can't fix it when he comes back from vacation, he can talk to other buyers. And lo and behold, they said yes. And so by the time he got back from his vacation, we had come to agreement on on the price and got him under LOI and then 90 days 
to close. So we worked through that difference in, in valuation, I think in part because of the rapport. And then again, was able to get him under LOI. And then that was the reason why I was the only bid that he ever received. In terms of getting a deal done, it sounds like you worked through some obvious valuation changes and discussions with the goal of, you know, you describe this as a sales process. You're selling towards the goal of closing and having this the sale and transaction. How do you work through and describe and discuss valuation expectations, especially if they're different from that of the seller? You know, it, it depends on the situation. Sometimes there are clear industry multiples. I think that helps. Uh, this is a gross oversimplification, but in my opinion and in my experience, it's very often the case that the seller is either looking for 10 or 20. They have a number in their mind and it is 10 million or 20 million. And they don't think a lot about, you know, is this a six times and eight times ARR, EBITDA? I don't think they think a lot about that. They think a lot about, I want my 10 and I want my, or I want my 20. And I think that that is very normal. So then you have to work around that because if the, if the, if the fundamentals of the business don't support the 10 or the 20, you have to, you have to work around that. But, you know, you can try, you can try to show them data on the average multiples in the lower middle market for sales and help them to agree with you on the number. But I will say you're, you're up for a battle if, let's say, for example, the number is 20 and they don't get even close on, on the industry fundamental multiples. Then you're up for a battle because that's their number and they're not going to change and they're not going to believe you and they're just going to wait until someone says 20. One thing I do think is important is you clarify with them, make sure that they understand whether that's 10 or 20 after tax. Because if they think it's 10 and then they realize, oh, I have to pay 20% capital gains, turns out that it's not 10, it's 12. So that's something that needs to be, you got to make sure that they understand that because when they realize they have to pay capital gains late in the process, then they want to change the number. So make sure they understand that early in the process. That's a good subtle note to be aware of for sure. How did the discussion go for you with that valuation gap with Raptor, it sounds like you're working mostly with the broker. Did did that conversation flow easier because you could the broker could be more objective about the business and industry multiples and whatnot? Or what was helpful in that conversation to bridge the gap? So in that particular case, in the um, in the Raptor case, one er, his number was ten. But early on, luckily, he realized he had to pay tax. And so so then he realized, oh, it has to be higher than 10 so that I can pay tax and come away with 10. So that was useful that early on he, he uh, realized that. What ended up happening was we had a $2 million gap and I was able to, to tweak some elements, but I was also actually able to find what I thought was missing EBITDA in the books, it was hard to know at that stage whether it was really missing EBITDA, whether the missing whether the EBITDA was really there or not. But I made a bet that there was more EBITDA than they were showing, 
and that it's I paid six times EBITDA, and then at six times EBITDA, that accounted for actually one point two million of our difference in in purchase price. So that bridged a lot of the gap, and then I tweaked and upped the offer to bridge the rest of the gap, and tried to do it pretty quickly to 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 make sure we didn't lose momentum. Yeah, it sounds like momentum played a big role in this, like saying I'll have the LOI on Monday, and then following through and being prompt with all communication. It sounds like that was really helpful in continuing the pace of the conversation. It was. It was. And I'm going to draw on another example outside of the three that we talked to. But I do remember one situation in which they were working on cash accounting. I was working on accrual accounting. I set a multiple. They thought I meant a multiple of cash accounting. I meant a multiple of accrual accounting. And that actually sunk the deal. Because once they realize I'm talking accrual and they're talking cash, and then we're off by millions of dollars, and uh, that sunk the deal. So you do have to be careful there as well. And then you worked with an advisor or broker for the Raptor deal. But in terms of the role of the advisor, what have you learned about working with sellers who have good and bad advisors and how you navigate each situation? Yes, I was fortunate in the case of the Raptor deal where he did have advisors and they were honest and willing to let a good deal happen. In the in the case of the uh, tech-enabled services company with the founder that wasn't quite ready to retire, he didn't have any advisors. So what ended up happening was things would jump around on a constant basis. And that was problematic. So not having advisors is problematic and having advisors that aren't extremely professional in M&A is also problematic. So I think what you hear from search fund entrepreneurs is that oftentimes the seller will try to bring in the lawyer that they know best, which is usually their real estate lawyer, and have them run the M&A transaction. But they are not extremely familiar with standard purchase and sale agreements. And that very oftentimes leads, leads to problems. They're trying to push back hard because they don't know these terms. They don't know that these terms are standard M&A terms, and they're pushing back hard, and that creates a, a ton of friction. Or a broker who has misaligned incentives from the seller, that can create a, a lot of friction. So you do see that often. I think a lot of search fund entrepreneurs try to softly suggest that maybe you know an M&A lawyer would be better than their real estate lawyer, but you know you never know whether they'll actually switch to that. So I think if you have bad advisors that are involved in the process, you will hold up diligence. That will lead to a lot of problems and it will lead to animosity because they will have advisors that are telling them negative things and that's what they'll think. So you do have to be careful of that. You don't want to walk away from a deal because they necessarily have bad advisors or a real estate lawyer or something like that, but it will lead to problems. How strongly should you push on that point then? if it's going to cause problems and animosity and perhaps cost them a lot in terms of terms or real dollars or just time and energy wasted, how hard did you push on that with a seller? I think it depends upon the, you'll see probably in the first interaction, right? You'll see if they come back with a markup that is just outrageous on the purchase and sale, and then you try to do round two and they don't budge at all. I think that's when you, say very clearly, listen, you, I think you need to have an M&A lawyer on that. Let me suggest three 
for you. Pick whichever one you want, but we can only move forward with a uh, with a lawyer that really understands an M and A transaction. I've heard that other search fund entrepreneurs do that, and so I think it depends upon the severity of the situation. But sometimes, and I have heard that you you have to drop the deal because the advisors are just holding it up and making it super expensive and creating tremendous animosity. What about the other side? So your own advisors, how do you moderate communication between your own advisors and the seller? Do you let the your own attorneys or diligence folks talk with the seller? Or do you, to your point earlier about rapport, like how do you balance rapport with advisor communication from your end? I think at the end of the day, you should be the main go-between with the seller. That's ideal. It's your relationship. You know how to phrase things in a way you've learned, you probably learned at that point what the seller is looking for, what they like, and you can phrase the things. I think there's times when, yes, you want to be efficient. You want to have their lawyer talk directly to the other lawyer without any intervention. Yes, I think that does happen. Or have your, I think it's more often the case that your qualitative earnings provider will talk directly to their accounting staff. I think that's very normal and grab all that information. So I think I think that can ha- that can go perfectly fine if you're having advisors that are not arrogant or unfriendly. I think that that can that can work that can work well having your advisors interact with theirs. It's much more efficient. Uh, before going into post closing discussions, is there anything else around getting a deal done or tools for rapport or any of the other topics we've talked about that are important to mention? I think the only one I would mention is face-to-face. You can create rapport at a, at a level and at a speed that is, cannot be done over Zoom. So I think when you have a real deal that you're very interested in, you want to fly out as soon as possible, sit down, create face-to-face rapport. And I think that will be well worth the plane ticket and well worth the time. And then during, maybe during the deal process, how often should you be going in person, ideally? You know, you hear stories of search fund entrepreneurs who literally camp out at the seller and either across the street from the company or next to their house or something like that to try to get the deal done. So, and I applaud that. I think, I think that's great. I think it depends upon the situation itself, how precarious it is what you need to be doing while you're there, how much access they allow you. If they allow you to come into the office and spend time with the employees, that's great. You should spend a lot of time there. Oftentimes, they don't want you there more than a couple times walking around. People start to ask questions if you're there every week. So, But I think at the end of the day, it depends upon the situation. But I know that it runs the gamut all the way to people camping out at the cellar. Yeah, that's definitely uh, an interesting strategy that I'm sure works great. The seller, of course, will not be entirely leaving the business once you close. So in terms of that relationship and any ongoing help you get from them, how do you manage the relationship after you've closed on the business? And kind of how long do you want them to stay within the business, around the business, within contact for, for you, for questions? and that kind of maybe timeline for their interaction with the business? I think if the seller does not, if you don't agree that the seller is going to continue to participate in the business, 
then I think it's very common to have a six-month, 12-month consulting agreement. That is, I think, the most normal thing that happens out there. In my opinion, the, the percentage of times that having the seller on the board, even if they roll, even if they don't roll, whether they roll or don't roll, having the seller on the board more often than not will lead to problems. I'm not saying it always leads to problems. I'm saying more often than not, it leads to problems. So I think in the ideal world, they're out of the business. They're under a consulting agreement that has the right incentives for them. You don't want to make it too cheap. You want to have, have the right incentives for them. And that lasts six months in a semi-intense way and maybe 12 months overall. Because you will need you will need them. You'll need to call on them about clients. You'll need to call on them about the history of deals. You'll need to call about on them about the competitive dynamics of X niche. So you will need their counsel along the way. But again, I think I I think the ideal situation is that they step away right right after close so that you come in and you are clearly the new owner and you're clearly the new CEO without having them in the office. You just have them on a consulting agreement. Maybe they come in and say hi once in a while, but you're you're meeting them to get information or it's your choice when they come into the office, et cetera. What are some best practices around transitioning some of those key relationships with customers, advisors, vendors, any other specific group of people or stakeholders? You know, this is where rapport comes in and a good relationship with the seller, because if you do have a a good relationship and good rapport and they want to see their baby grow, then it is in there to their advantage to make those transitions. So in the case of Raptor, as an example, we had a very important conference. Raptor does school security software. And we had a very important conference with the heads of school security from all over the country once a year. And that first one that happened post-closing the seller came to the conference with me. We prepared a dual presentation in which he got up, thanked everyone for all the years of support and said, I'm passing the reins to Jim and Jim is going to take the company from here. And it was a very positive handoff to a thousand people at once. So that was great. So you will need them to transition some things and or be involved in, in some other way. So again, that rapport and or your structural agreement. You might have a structural agreement that says, I need personal introductions to the 10 largest customers, something like that. If that's what you need and you think you might not get it otherwise, you should put it in the, in the agreement, in the consulting agreement. What else should folks keep in mind after the close in terms of their relationship with the seller? I think we've covered... A lot of it, I think there's a lot of things that can happen if they stay in the business. And I didn't have that experience, so I can't talk to them firsthand. But the dynamics of dealing with a seller that stays in the business are a whole nother ballgame that I think you could talk hours about. And again, sometimes it works. I think there are some examples out there where it works very well. And there's lots of examples where it doesn't. Any common threads for the examples where it does work really well to keep the seller in the business? You know, anecdotally, it is when you find someone who truly is a specialist, say they're a coder or an engineer of some sort, and it's an important engineering business, and they are truly tapped out 
and they know that they're tapped out from a capability perspective of managing the larger business, not that specialty, but the larger business. I think in those cases where they say, hey, I'm tapped out, I recognize that, and they're a trustworthy, positive person, I think in those cases where you keep them on, they do whatever their specialty is, let's call it engineering, and they love engineering, and they're a positive person. I think in those cases, it can work well, and I have heard that it works well. Fantastic. Jim, thank you so much for sharing your time on the podcast as part of the launch series. Really appreciate hearing all the different perspectives you've gleaned from working with sellers. So appreciate you sharing your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood and Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts in our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. Thank you.